Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 25. And actually, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Not that we haven't done it before from the book of Exodus. We have, but we're going to summarize a number of chapters together. And what I mean is this morning, we see a common link between chapters 25, 26, 27, and 28. Four chapters. I mean, it's more than 140 verses. But it's all about God speaking to Israel through Moses, because these were words that Moses received as he was on Mount Sinai, but speaking to Israel about a place of worship that he wanted built, a tabernacle. And so we're going to summarize that here this morning, these four chapters. But again, this week, we're going to be back in that video studio. What a blessing that is to have that video studio there and sitting down and available for you through our website. We'll be carefully breaking it down section by section, point by point, that which I summarize for you here now this morning. So Exodus chapter 25, I just want you to have it in your mind where we're at now in the book of, Gen- in the book of Exodus. God called Moses to meet up with him on Mount Sinai, up into that thick cloud and that fire that surrounded the mountain and was the emblem of his presence and his glory. And when Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, God revealed more to him. Now, not first more about laws and more laws following on what God had already given. We've already seen that in Exodus chapters 21, 22, and 23. God gave Israel very important laws and principles to govern themselves with. No, now... God speaks to Moses up on Mount Sinai, not about more rules for the people to obey, but he speaks to them about worship, about the life that they're to live before him in worship to God. And I got to say, just by principle, at the very outset, I find the great theme of these four chapters set before us, Exodus 25, 26, 27, 28, about building a place of worship and establishing the institutions of worship in Israel, I find it very striking. For this very reason, God first gave his law to Israel, but then he said, that's not enough. I want you to worship me a specific way, and now I'm going to teach you along that. Now, here's the principle that I've got to take away from this and apply to my life, and I trust you need to apply it to your life as well. Listen carefully. Your obedience to God isn't enough. He wants your worship. He wants your devotion. Now, there are some of you, And I don't mean for a moment that you live lives of perfect obedience. We understand that, don't we? There's not a single person here who lives a life of perfect obedience to God. But in general, your life is lived in general obedience to God. That there's no, you know, outstanding or, you know, hugely obvious way in which you're in direct rebellion to God. You live a life of general obedience to God and God bless you. That's a good thing. I'm happy you do it. But I'm here to just tell you very directly, it's not enough. You need to give God your worship, the devotion of your heart. Let me illustrate it to you this way. What if you had a child, let's say eight, nine years old, and the child, let's say it's a little boy, comes up to you and says, Daddy or Mommy, whatever the case would be, Daddy, um, I, 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 I am going to obey you every day for the rest of my life. Whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. Whatever you tell me to stop doing, I'll stop doing it. I'll obey you perfectly for the rest of my life. Well, first of all, you'd be so much in shock that you'd probably, you know, have to call the ambulance after your heart attack. 
or a tear would roll down your cheek. Just, oh, I can't believe my child's saying this to me. But no, but what if your child followed that statement up? I'll obey you perfectly, but I won't love you. Who here would take that deal? No. We'd say, no, I do want my child to obey me. That's important. I don't want to act like obedience is unimportant. But, oh, how I want to have a relationship of love with them as well. Did you know that God feels the same way towards you? And God bless you for the obedience that you offer to God. He sees it and he values it. But for some of you, you really need to be prodded. And I'm here to encourage you. God wants your worship. He wants your devotion. He wants an outpouring of your heart on somewhat of an emotive level to say, I love you, God. I love you, Jesus, and all that you've done for me. That is all bound up in this institution of the worship for Israel. So it would all begin by God instructing them on how to build a place of worship according to a pattern that God showed them. When Moses came down from that mountain after 40 days and 40 nights up on the mountain, Not only did he carry in his hand, so to speak, the two tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments, but he also, and I'm speaking figuratively here, but figuratively you could say he had a bunch of blueprints tucked under his other arm. Because God showed them the pattern and the outline of something that they were supposed to build. Now, at the very beginning, before the blueprints ever come out, before God told them what to build, look at what he says right here in Exodus chapter 25, starting at verse 1. We read, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. Before God ever told them what they would do, because I'll tell you what they're going to do. They're going to build a glorious tabernacle of meeting unto God. It's going to be ornate. It's going to have gold and silver and brass. It's going to have uh, an altar and it's going to have a labor for ceremonial washings. It's going to have all these beautiful and intricate things. But it's going to take money to do this. It's going to take the materials that are very valuable to do it. And God said, before anything, Moses, verse 25, excuse me, verse 2 of chapter 25, speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. Before God ever told them what the offering was for, he said, do it and have them bring me an offering. Now, this this speaks to me very powerfully. It speaks to me of the principle that our giving should not be primarily because of need. No, no, no. We should primarily give because our willing heart compels us to give unto the Lord. That's a very important distinction. Listen, I, I thank the Lord for the generosity of this congregation. I think it is a tremendous blessing from God. But I hope that you're generous for the right reasons. And the right reason is not primarily, if I could put it so crassly, the church needs money. No, that shouldn't be the primary motivation. The primary motivation should be, I've got a generous heart that wants to give unto the Lord. This should be what moves us. This should be what stirs us. So before God ever told them the need, he said, bring me an offering. And the other thing we think about when God asks for an offering, we think of a very basic principle. I mean, you know it and I know it, but it's just good to be reminded of it. The basic principle is this. God is a rich God. There's no shortage of resources with God. All the gold that's in the world, God has access to it, and I suppose he could make some more if he wanted to. On and on, any resource, God has plenty of. Yet, 
instead of miraculously creating these resources and just dropping them down before Israel, God says, no, Moses, you ask Israel for people to willingly give it among themselves. Why? Because God usually uses the willing hearts of his people as the way to support the work. Because God wants to develop giving hearts within us. When we become a giving people, we become more and more like God, who's the greatest giver. You know it, don't you? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. All giving begins with the heart of God because he's the greatest giver. So, yes, it's very important for us to be a giving people. I'll tell you one of the reasons why it's important and it's great for us to do. Because it addresses one of the biggest sacred cows, one of the biggest idols of our culture, of our society. And I'm not revealing any kind of great secret here. You know what I'm about to say. One of the greatest idols of our present society is materialism, consumerism. You know it and I know it. You battle with it and I battle with it. And if you never battle with materialism and consumerism, it's probably because you're completely given over to it. This is something for us to really address. I believe that one of the great antidotes that God has given for the poison of materialism in consumerism is a giving heart. Because when we have a giving, giving generous heart to what God wants to do and how he wants to advance his kingdom in this world, it sort of inoculates us against that poison of idolatry and materialism and consumerism. So it's a good thing. And I speak to you as a generous congregation. I'm so happy that I don't have to speak to you and say, start being generous. No, I say to you, continue to be generous and grow in this more and more. But please notice this. Look again at verse 2. It says this. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. Friends, God does not want giving in his kingdom to be motivated by guilt or manipulation or coercion. He wants it to be motivated out of a willing heart that wants to give. You see, God doesn't want that coerced or manipulated giving. And it reflects it as well in the New Testament. You remember that passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 9 where it says this. So let each one of you give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I think that's how God wants to work in our heart. Now, one more thing about this offering before we go on to verse 3. Look at it there in verse 2 where it says this. You shall take my offering. Oh, I love that. Who does the offering belong to? It belongs to God. It didn't belong to Moses. It didn't belong to the elders. It didn't belong to the tribal leaders. It didn't even belong to the people themselves. It was God's offering. And anybody who managed it was to manage it as a sacred trust. And if I could... I hope it's not sin, but if I could just boast just a little bit about the management that we have of God's resources that he directs us here at this church. We've got an excellent financial team that manages things so well. We've got a board that oversees the operation of just the finances, and we've got a great group of elders who oversee things beyond that. I I just think it's wonderful to see how God has blessed the management and honored the management of the resources here at this congregation, because it's based on this principle that the offering belongs to the Lord. It's his offering. Well, anyway, look, going on now, verse three, it says, 
And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair, and ram skins, and dyed, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, and the sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. This is what we need. Here's our shopping list, so to speak. This is what we need to build this thing that God wants us to build. Now, that would be a unique offering service at a church congregation, wouldn't it? We're a little short on the badger skins. Could somebody chip in a little bit more? But no, these materials were to be used in building a structure that God commanded Moses to build. And each of the materials had a symbolic or a spiritual representation relevant to the building. And it would have been substantial. I think probably according, you know, people have different estimates and such. But when you take a look at the raw materials that were used in this, you're talking about a structure that was probably worth at least $13 million, probably more. It would have weighed more than nine tons, all the assembled things used to build this particular uh, structure. You use verse 3, says gold, silver, and bronze. You use blue and purple and scarlet thread. You use fine linen and goat's hair dyed red and badger skins. You used acacia wood and oil and spices and incense and onyx stones and other precious stones. Collect all of this together so that you can assemble it according to the pattern that God wanted to be made. And that's where we get into in verse 8. Notice this. It says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you. That is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furnishings so that you shall make it. Now, please notice here what it says in verses 8 and 9. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. The purpose of the tabernacle was to be a dwelling place for God. Now, we don't think for a moment that God only lived at the tabernacle. That when you went to the tabernacle, oh, here was God's presence. And when you went over, oh, God isn't here. No, God is Lord over all the earth. But yet God said, I want there to be a special place where I come and meet with my people. By the way, if you notice it carefully in verse 8, that's the phrasing. Let them make me a sanctuary. The sanctuary was for the Lord. It was his holy place. It was his set-apart place. Let me explain it to you this way. Every square inch of this world belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's all his. Yet we can't deny that there are certain places that God sets apart for his glory. And he says, at this place, I want to meet with my people. I want to dwell among them. This room is just such a place. Now, please, I hope that this is not the only place you meet with God. I hope that you read your Bible outside of this room. Did you know that you can do it? You can actually open your Bible and read it. It works outside of this room. Did you know that you can worship God? You can actually sing a song of praise to God outside these walls. You can worship God out of this room. You can pray out of this room. You can read the Bible out of this room. You can do all of that, and I hope that you do, and you should do it. But isn't there something special about when God's people gather together here at this place, and we're just so assured that here we are with the Spirit of God in our midst, and Jesus here is in our midst to meet with us? It's a special thing, and we thank God for it. Because God's heart is still the same today. When he told ancient Israel that I may dwell among them, he wants to dwell among his people right here, right now, today. 
The meeting place wasn't only for man. It was for the Lord. And that's why he said, build this tent, build this tabernacle. But notice this in verse nine. It says, build it according to all that I show you. That is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings. That's what God wanted them to do, to build it, to build this tent. It would be portable. It would be a structure that could be taken apart and packed on animals and taken through the wilderness, but that they would build this tent so that it would be according to the pattern, the pattern that God showed Moses on the tabernacle. Look at that carefully there in verse 9. I'll read it again. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furnishings. It's evident from this. Notice that word there in verse 9, show. God didn't just describe this verbally to Moses, but I believe based on that word show that God gave Moses an actual vision of what this should look like. There was some sort of heavenly vision where Moses had it not only described to him, but God showed him a vision of what it should look like. And he did it with some sense of precision. There were blueprints. There were architectural plans. Build it just like this. Now, why? I tell you what, this is a very exciting thing to consider. God wanted Moses to build it according to pattern because it reflected a heavenly reality. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a throne room of God in heaven where he sits on a beautiful throne surrounded by glorious cherubim. And there is some sort of altar of incense where prayer is offered or commemorized before him. There is some sort of um, um, commemoration of fellowship with God, with the table of showbread. There's some kind of representation of the lamp, the seven lamps of the Holy Spirit. There is all over it some heavenly reality that this earthly picture corresponds to. Now, how would I say that? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5 says this, that the tabernacle was a copy of, and a shadow of heavenly things. I don't know if I'm exaggerating a little bit when I say this, but I hope you get the point. God told Moses, I want you to build a scale model of my throne room in heaven. Now, nobody should mistake. Whatever is there up in heaven is so much more glorious, so much more innate, so much more beautiful, so much more holy and majestic. But whatever it is, as poor of a reflection as it may be, What God told Moses to build was a scale model of what actually exists in heaven. So God told them to build the tabernacle. He told them what to build. And I love how he starts it because right there starting in verse uh, 10, I think it is, of chapter 25, God starts telling them what to build. And the first thing he tells them to build is the Ark of the Covenant. This was the center of Israel's worship representing the throne of God itself, surrounded by cherubim right there in the Holy of Holies. And God told them, describe, excuse me, God described for them the building work by starting from the inside and working out. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that how God does his building work in your life as well? He starts on the inside and then he wants to work out. So he tells them, build an Ark of the Covenant with its special lid that was to be a place of atonement. He tells them to build a table of showbread, a demonstration of God's fellowship with his people. 
He tells him to build a golden lampstand, the only illumination that would be there in the dark tent of the tabernacle. He tells him to build the tabernacle itself with its frame and its multiple coverings. This is on into chapter 26. He tells him to build an altar of burnt offerings that will stand in the court. He tells them to build the fence that would mark the border of the court of the tabernacle. And then he tells them to build the lamps for the golden lampstands. And then into chapter 28, he tells them to build the garments, or to make the garments, I should say, for the high priest, garments that were for glory and beauty. And then he finishes chapter 8 describing the garments for the other priests. Now, does this interest you? I hope it interests you. I find it fascinating. I find it fascinating what God told them to build in the Ark of the Covenant, this actual representation of the throne of God himself and all that it meant and all that it signified. And what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Where did it end up? What was the history of it? How did it all work out? Well, for that, you're going to have to click online to our sort of in-depth conversational expositions where we're going to go through and break it apart piece by piece verse by verse, and really dig into this and see. But this morning, I just intend to give you a summation that stresses this, that the entire layout of the tabernacle gave Israel a wonderful center for worship, for sacrifice, for their national feasts and rituals. And it was also portable. You could take the whole thing down, put it on pack animals, and send it on. Although not everything was to be transported by pack animals, certain things could only be transported by human effort alone. And this was appropriate for their journey through the wilderness. So when I think about all this, I think about each individual component. I think about all these things and how they point so beautifully to Jesus Christ, both in their part and in their place in the whole. I just think about it and I thought, you know, I need to go in depth on at least one thing with them on Sunday morning. What should I go in depth with them? I thought, no, not the Ark of the Covenant. No, not the table of showbread. No, not the golden lambs and all that stuff's fascinating, but no, not that. No, not the garments for the priests, although that's a whole study just in itself. What God told the priest to wear, no, not this. And I thought, I know, I know what I'll talk to him about. I'll talk to him about the veil. To turn to Exodus chapter 26, starting at verse 31. You shall make a veil woven of blue and purple and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold and upon four sockets of silver. God wanted them to make a veil. It would be about 15 feet wide, corresponding with the width of the tabernacle, and about 10 feet tall, corresponding with the height of the tabernacle. By the way, I should just remind you that the tabernacle itself was not a particularly large tent. It measured only about 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. Think of how many of those tabernacles you could fit just in this building we're meeting in right now. I don't know how many, six, seven, eight. You could just pile them in here one after another. It was not particularly large. The tabernacle was not glorious because of its size but because of all that it represented. And as part of the tabernacle, God said, I want you to make this veil. Make it out of fine linen with blue and purple and scarlet yarn. Now, we don't know how all the colors mix together. 
We don't know the exact uh, pattern that the artist used. We don't know how they pictured the cherubim that are pictured on there. Every artist gives a little bit different representation. But we know this, that it was to have the artistic design of cherubim. And even though it says veil right there, don't think of a light little bridal veil that's sort of gauzy and you can see through. No, this was a thick piece of fabric. And later on in the temple days, the veil that stood in the temple in the days of Jesus was so thick that the Jewish rabbis said that it was as thick as four fingers, as thick as the entire width of your hand. That's how thick the veil was. Why? Why hang it in the tabernacle? Why did it have to be thick? Why did it have to have the artistic design of cherubim? Why? Look at the next verse, verse 33 of Exodus chapter 26. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. So God says this great tent that you make, this tabernacle, it's going to have two compartments in it. In the first compartment, the larger compartment, there's going to be the altar of incense and the table of showbread and the golden lampstand. That'll be in the first compartment. But in the second compartment, the smaller compartment, no, it's going to be divided by the veil. In the second compartment will be the Ark of the Covenant itself. It will stand in what's called the most holy. Now think about that. You had the holy place and then you had the most holy place. And it was the Ark of the Covenant itself that stood there in the most holy place, shielded by the veil that stood there, dividing between the two. And I want you to emphasize that. It says there in verse 33, the veil shall be a divider. It was a separator. When a priest came up to the veil, it said, stop, go no further. Only one man, once a year, and only that with special atoning blood could go in through the veil and with a trembling presence he would go before God on the day of atonement and he would offer the blood of the sacrifice on the day of atonement first for his own sins and then for the sins of the nation. Do you want to know what a frightening thing it was for one man to go behind that veil once a year? You'll find in Exodus chapter 28 when God gives instructions for the garments of the priest that around the hem of the priest's garment, he said, I want you to make little bells at the bottom of the priest's garment. You think, what is he, a belly dancer or something like that? No, I want you to make little bells down there at the bottom of his garment. Why? He says, so that he shall not die. Now, what would that be the idea? Well, here's the idea. That the sound of the tinkling of the bells assured everybody who could not see what the high priest was doing behind that veil that divided. When they heard the sound of the tinkling bell, they knew that the high priest was still alive and had not been struck dead by God. Matter of fact, it doesn't say this in the Bible, but we know this from rabbis later on, that not only would they put the bells around that garment of the high priest, but they would also tie a rope to his foot and the end of the rope would remain outside the veil. So if they heard a crashing of bells and a man collapsing in the Holy of Holies, they didn't have to go in there with the paramedics. They could just draw the man out by the rope that's on his foot. One man 
once a year with fear and trembling could go behind that veil. Now, you remember I told you before that the tabernacle is actually a pattern of a heavenly reality. And that the most holy place represents God's throne room and the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God itself. This is what I want you to consider. I want you to consider that there is a heavenly reality that all of this arrangement was built according to. And the Bible tells us that Jesus entered into that heavenly reality and made atonement for our sins. That Jesus, that perfect one, he went into the heavenly reality of God's throne room. And I have no idea what that looked like. I have no idea how it was actually conducted or acted out. But I know that Jesus brought his perfect atoning blood before God the Father and he presented it before his throne and he offered the perfect sacrifice that no priest ever could on that day of atonement. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12. That Jesus with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. I don't even know if we can picture this in our mind's eye. But there the Son of God comes, ascended to heaven, offering the perfect satisfaction for your sin and for my sin before the throne. And I do know this, that when Jesus died, what happened to that veil in the temple? Come on, you know, it was torn in two. And by the way, was it torn in two from the bottom to the top? No. Matthew specifically says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, that that veil was torn into from the top to the bottom because God in heaven took that veil. You saw that picture of the veil before and he grabbed on both sides and he ripped it in two. And you know what he said to you and I? He said, come on into my presence. Enter in. The way is now made a new and a living way by the work and the power of Jesus Christ. Now the most holy place is open to us. It's wide open. And Jesus says, come. Won't you meet with me? Jesus did all of this so that we could enter in. Now, I want you to put in your mind once again, and this is just in conclusion now, the picture of the tabernacle as a whole. And I want you to put yourself in the sandals of a worshiper in ancient Israel. You would come up to that tabernacle door And there it is. The priest would be there sort of guarding who comes in and who comes out. And they would allow you into the courts of the tabernacle. And isn't that beautiful? You would enter into his courts and you would just feel good being on the inside of that fence. You'd say, yes, thank you, Lord. I'm in the courts of your house. And I wouldn't doubt that you'd feel something special. By the way, I I believe that there's a sense in which right now you've come into his courts just by being here on a Sunday morning. And then secondly you would come to the altar because that's what stood next. That's the first thing you'd come to. The altar, the place where your sin was taken care of. And you would come and offer that sacrifice unto the Lord. And just as much as you do it now, you look to the altar that God has provided us and you've come into his courts and now you look at the altar and you think of the cross and what Jesus did for you on the cross. So you come into the courts, you come to the altar, then there would be a basin of water, a laver, for you to wash and to be prepared. And so there you are, you're washed in the labor. And ladies and gentlemen, I know you, you need to be washed, you need to be washed every week. I know I'm not talking about 
cleanliness being next to godliness and good hygiene and all of that. Although that's a good word. Maybe we should talk about that on a Sunday sometime. But no, no, no. What I really mean is that don't you come in here every Sunday with the dust of the world on your feet? Don't you come in just a little bit weary, spotted if not stained from an interaction with the world through the week, and you need to be cleansed and hear the washing of the water of the word is there to do that for you, and I'm so happy about that. So you come into the courts, you come to the altar, you come to the labor, and all of that's good. And then maybe even you come and you pray and you offer that incense on the altar of incense, which is like prayer before the Lord. And all of that is good. But do you see, you could do all of those things and never walk in past the veil to the very presence of God. This is what Jesus says to you and to me this morning. He says, enter in. Won't you come and enter in? You've held back. You've come into my courts, you've come to the altar, you come to the labor wash, all that's good. But would you please enter in, keep going until you touch God, so to speak. Until you come and you, in your innermost soul, you come to that very holy place and meet him there. His heart is still to live among his people, not meeting them in a tent anymore, but knowing the person and work of Jesus Christ the one who tabernacled among us and opened up wide the gates of heaven. There are some of you. You love Jesus. I know that you do. It's just been a while since you've really allowed yourself to enter in. I can only think of two reasons why you wouldn't. One might be sin. Sin in a lot of different ways. You say, no, I can't enter in because of sin. Did you know the sin thing is actually pretty easy to take care of? You just look to the cross and what Jesus did to pay for your sins on the cross. But then the second reason could be more problematic. It's unbelief. You doubt either that you can do it or you doubt that you need to do it. If God persuade you to have a believing heart right now that says, I want to enter in. Jesus, you've opened it wide for me. In my heart, in my soul, turned in direction to you, I want to enter in right now. Father, that's my prayer. It's my prayer for myself. I don't want to hang out in the outer courts, not when you've torn the veil in two from top to bottom. I want to enter in, Lord. And I pray especially for those, Lord, in our midst, For whatever reason, Lord, they have consciously kept a distance between a full surrender to you, so to speak, and and where they're at right now. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to each one of us that we would not stop until we've connected with you in that holy place. Lord, I know that I I don't think I've even given adequate enough description of what that means. Because in some ways, Lord, it goes beyond description. But I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak it to each individual heart. That every one of us would just picture in our mind that veil torn in two. And us with the ability to enter in. Thank you for that, Jesus. We love you. We praise you this morning and ask that now in these few moments 
of singing prayers unto you. That you would call us as deep calls to deep. To come and to give you the worship that you deserve. Not only our obedience, Lord, but our worship also. In Jesus' name.